I can't help but smirk when I listen to that music. I feel like I should come out to sort of the bad to the bone and get gritty and like eat a big piece of meat or get some dirt and bark and, you know, rub it on my face and then eat it. And I was torn over the two, so in my manliness, I just went into indecision, as a man does, so I didn't bring out anything. Uh, welcome to Christ Community Chapel. It is wonderful to see you. If you're tuning in online, welcome. If you're watching from East Hall, welcome. My name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and we are opening up Man Month for the month of June. We are looking at, at what it looks like to be a man of God, what does God tell us about being a man in His Word, and as the men's pastor here, my hope and my prayer for everyone, but for the men in particular, is that you would listen to the Holy Spirit of God as He speaks to you throughout this month. And then my prayer is that you would have the courage to obey whatever the Holy Spirit of God is telling you. Maybe it's something about your personal life. Perhaps it could be your marriage. Maybe it's in your job or at home with family or in your community. But my hope and prayer for everyone, but for the men in particular, is that you would listen to the Holy Spirit of God speak to you this month and that you would respond with courage and obedience. We are unpacking this weekend the story of Saul and David. It's, the sermon is called A Man After God's Heart. A Man After God's Heart. And there were a couple of different things that happened in Saul's life and in David's life. And, and Saul, to me, is one of the greatest tragedies in the entire Bible. And here's why. Because he was poised to be used by God. He was chosen to be Israel's first king. He was tall. He was handsome. He came from a good, wealthy family. And he was ready to be used by God. But act after act after act of disobedience to God, the throne, his kingdom of Israel, was removed from Saul and given to David. So let me read for you out of 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. This is right after Saul disobeys God yet again. And, and God sends Samuel the prophet because in this time, God used prophets as his mouthpiece to kings and to people to communicate his message. So the prophets were the mouthpieces of God and they brought God's message and Samuel is, is asked by God to go and speak to Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And that's why my prayer for everyone, but for the men in particular, is that this month you would listen to the Holy Spirit of God and obey him with courage, whatever that looks like in your life, whatever that means to your life. Because Saul 
didn't. And because of Saul's disobedience to the kingdom, the throne was taken from him and given to David. And we don't really <clears throat> even know much about David at this point in 1 Samuel chapter 13, but yet David is called a man after God's heart. So I want to spend the rest of our time looking at three character traits that David demonstrated to show that he was indeed a man after God's heart. And I want us to apply those three character traits to our lives so that we would be people after God's heart, but so in particular the men of our church, wherever they go, would be known as men after God's heart. First character trait is a man who feasts on God's word. A man who feasts on God's word. The second character trait is a man who repents. A man who repents. And then the third character trait is a man who worships. A man who worships. So a man who feasts on God's word, a man who repents, and then a man who worships. David was a man who feasted on God's word. He ate of it. He delighted in it. And I got to use the imagery of feasting because, let's be honest, guys, what motivates us? Food, right? Stomachs. I have uh, two boys, three and a half, one and a half, and I am convinced that from the womb, it is innate within the male gender to be motivated by food, to be motivated by food. I have two brothers. I have five brothers-in-law, so I'm around guys a ton, and so we eat a lot, and we are motivated by food. So my hope is that as you understand this first character trait of a man after God's heart, as a man who feasts on God's word, that whenever you eat, because I know you will, <laughs> multiple times a day, that you would have that stuck in your mind to feast on God's word. The first time I feasted on God's word was as a senior in college. And I can remember going through the Psalms and feasting on God's word. And I want to share a particular psalm with you, Psalm chapter 19, to show you how David feasted on God's word. Psalm chapter 19, starting in verse 7, David is going to talk and he's going to use different synonyms to describe God's word. He's going to call it the law of God, the commands of God, the precepts of God. And all of that means God's word. And this is David feasting on God's word. This is what he says in chapter 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous Altogether, And then David says this in verse 10 about God's word. More to be desired are they, meaning God's word, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Drop down to verse 14. David says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. David delighted in God's word. He, 
He was sustained by it. And as a senior in college, I remember the first time that I began to feast on God's Word. It was the summer before my senior year. Uh, I was dating a girl. We had dated for about three years. We, were, we had picked out a wedding date after we were going to graduate. We had one session of uh, premarital counseling under our belts, and I had been giving plasma twice a week as a college student to get cash to make payments on the ring I had on layaway. And so I had the ring ready. I was going to propose to her uh, right before our senior year. And the weekend that I was going to go propose, she broke up with me and she ended the relationship. And I was devastated and I was crushed and I was broken and I was filled with sorrow. And I began to wonder, God, what happened? What, what, what did I miss? What, what was going on? Where were you? You know, and I began to feel overwhelmed by uh, the situation. And I turned by God's grace for the rest of my senior year, I turned to the Word of God and I began to eat it. I began to feast on it. And I would take passages of Scripture and write them on paper to help me memorize them. And then I would put the paper in the different, on the different walls of my apartment. I'm sure my roommates thought I was going crazy because our apartment, our off-campus apartment was just plastered with pieces of paper that I wrote scripture verses on because I knew that if I could literally see God's word on the walls, I could get from room to room. And the moment I took my eyes off of God's word, I felt the situation and the waves come crashing down upon me. And I began to feast on God's word. And my senior year was a time of feasting and being sustained by God's word. And that's what David did. And that's what a man after God's heart does. He feasts on God's word. But the question is for us, how do we do that? What's, what's the practical part of that? How do we feast on God's word? All right, so let me take you back last Thanksgiving, right? Last November to your Thanksgiving spread. You got the turkey, maybe you do the ham, maybe you got the mashed potatoes. If you're healthy, you do the sweet potatoes. If you're not so healthy, you put a bunch of sweet stuff on top of the sweet potatoes, right? You got the pumpkin pie, you got the pecan pie, you got the French silk pie, you got the apple pie, you got the whipped cream, you got the ice cream. Some of you are like, I am starving right now. Those of you that like cranberry sauce, all right, you got that on the table too, all right? This whole spread, right, this whole spread, there's no amount of osmosis that's going to get that food into your stomach by just sitting in your lazy boy recliner, right? Sorry, I'm speaking to the men, right? Right? There's nothing that's going to happen. You actually have to come to the table to eat the food, right? The first step of feasting on God's word is reading the Bible, is reading it. That's akin to coming to the table. Step one of feasting on, on God's word is reading it. You have to come to the table to partake of it. You have to come to the table. You have to read it. Well, how do you read it? Every time before I open my Bible, I pray two things. Because this isn't just a book. This is God's Word. It's living. It's active. It is transformative. It is filled with power through the Holy Spirit. And so anytime before I read this book, I say two things. I pray two things. I say, Holy Spirit, please teach me what I need to know. Please teach me what I need to know. And then my second prayer is, Holy Spirit, please give me the courage to obey it. Holy Spirit, please teach me what I need to know. 
And Holy Spirit, please give me the courage to obey it. The first part of feasting on on God's word is coming to the table by reading it. Reading God's word puts it in your mind. So you pray for the Holy Spirit to show you. And then the second part of that, reading it, is making the time to read it. Be disciplined. Make the time. Make it a priority. Find a consistent time every day to read it. If you want to do a reading plan, do a reading plan. But find a consistent time every day. Now you're going, if you're like me, you have a three and a half year old and a one and a half year old. The word consistent is currently not in my vocabulary for this particular season of life. So I have inserted a new C word called creative, right? I have to be creative with how I read the Bible. So if the boys sleep well one night, I can get up in the morning and I would always prefer to read the Bible in the morning. But if those of you that have had children, sometimes they don't just do what you want them to do (laughs) at night and they don't, sometimes they don't sleep well at night. And then if I'm really, really tired and the alarm clock goes off and I'm going, I cannot get up and focus on on God's word, then I got to do it at lunch that day on my lunch break. Or I do it uh, when I come home from work that evening. But I make the time to do it. So be consistent if you can be consistent. If you're in a crazy time in life, be creative. But make the point is make the time. Read God's word. That's step one. Put it in your mind. Second step, study it. Go back to your Thanksgiving spread. This is the person who has come to the table and now they are putting the food in their mouth and they are chewing it, right? And they are savoring it and they're letting the flavors burst and pop make their mouth water, make them go, oh, this is so good. Honey, we got to get the recipe for this. This is incredible food, right? That's studying God's word. It's taking time to savor God's word, to enjoy it. I would submit to you that a teenager, teenagers will pretty much eat anything, right? They don't savor food. They consume food, right? You ask a teenager, hey, what'd you have for dinner? They're like, I don't know, it was food. Did you like it? Uh, it was good. I'm probably talking more about high school guys, right? Teenage guys. It was in my, it's in my stomach now. I don't know. I just hate it, right? This step is really important to chew on it. Chew on God's word. Study God's word. Well, how do you study God's word practically? You have to have a pen and paper by you. You have to make notes, observations, questions you may have. Interact with God's word. Savor it. Delight in it. Chew on it. Let the flavors pop and marinate in your mouth, just like you would when you enjoy a delicious meal. Practically, what that looks like, after you take notes, is to memorize Scripture. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The idea there in the Greek is for the word of God, the word of Christ, to take up residence in your heart. Think about when you moved into your house or your apartment or your college dorm or wherever you live. You took up residence there. You unpacked. You made it your home. You you are living there. You don't leave there often. You always return back to that place. That's what Paul is saying in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Let Let it fill you up. Let it move into your heart. Let it inhabit your heart. 
through memorization. And before you go, I can't memorize anything, Caleb. Why are you telling me this? Don't freak out. Find a small verse. Start there. Chew on it. Memorize it. Colossians 3.16 is a good verse to start. Memorize it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right? And then the third part of studying it, of chewing on it, is to meditate on it. And again, before you go, whoa, Eastern meditation, that's sort of emptying yourself. Our culture has so screwed up the word meditate. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind. Rather, it's filling your mind with the truth of who God is and what he has done from his word. So you take time. You don't wolf it down like a, like a teenage guy, right? You take time to savor it, enjoy it, study it, make notes, ask questions of the text, memorize it, and then meditate on it. Fill your mind with the truth of who God is and what he has done for you. Meditate on it. This second step takes it from your head to your heart. The third step of feasting on God's word is applying it to your life. Read it, study it, apply it. And again, go back to your Thanksgiving spread. How many of you have seen people at your Thanksgiving table come to the table, take a bite, and just enjoy that bite? Oh, this is so good. Mm. And then they're able to identify like the spices and the flavors in there. And then they go, mm, mm. Right? And just spit it out on the, on the table. Right? How many Christians do that with God's word? Oh, I've read it. Oh, this is great stuff. Oh, I know who this could be applied to. I know exactly who this is for. All of those other people in my life need to know this. Right? <laughs> Applying God's word is like swallowing that food. Right? Swallow the food. Apply it to your life. It's for you. Understand that God's word is living and active. And it's ready to transform you if you would swallow it and apply it to your life. Applying it to your life takes it from your heart out to your hands and feet. So did you see the movement of scripture there when we feast on it? We put it in our minds, read it, we study it, put it in our hearts, and then we apply it to our lives and it comes out in our attitudes, in our reactions, in our responses, in our families, in our marriages, at work, in our circles of influence. We apply the word of God to our lives. So what does that look like practically? Have a concrete response to God's word. If a passage is talking about forgiveness, think about somebody you can forgive, right? This is not rocket science. If the, if the passage is talking about having trust and faith in God being sovereign and in control, think about an area of your life that you are holding on to with worry and anxiety and saying, God, no, I rule this area and go, oh my goodness, the word of God just told me that he's in control, he's sovereign. Practically, my response is gonna be, God, you take this. Help me to give this to you. If I feel worry coming at me, help, help remind me. Let me meditate and memorize your word that you're sovereign and in control. James chapter one says, if you're just a hearer of the word but not a doer, you're like somebody who looks at their face in the mirror and then leaves and forgets what they look like. Has anybody here ever forgotten what they've looked like? I know there have been times where I wish I would have forgotten what I looked like, but I didn't. I remembered, which is why I wish I would have forgotten. There are so many Christians, though, who look at God's word, study, and then they walk away and completely forget it. We have to be hearers of the word and 
doers of the word. That's how we apply the word of God to us. A man after God's heart feasts on God's word. He comes to the table by reading it and it's put in his mind. He chews it. He savors it. He studies it and it dwells in his heart. And then he swallows it and it is applied to his life by doing it with a concrete response. A man after God's heart feasts on God's word. In John chapter 6, Jesus gives a particularly tough teaching. And the, John chapter 6 says, a bunch of disciples leave Jesus. They just walk away from him. And Jesus turns and he looks at the 12 and he goes, do you want to leave me as well? And Simon Peter responds, and I love Simon Peter because I identify with him. He is a guy who, who spoke and then thought. <laughs> he has no filter. And I identify with, yeah, you should have thought before you spoke. And Simon Peter just blurts out, who else would we go to, Jesus? Who else would we go to? You alone have the words of eternal life. Men, do you know that when you feast on God's word, you feast on the words of eternal life? If you want to be a man after God's heart, you must be a man who feasts on God's word. Second character trait that David demonstrated that Saul did not was a man who repents. Repentance is turning from something like sin and turning 180 degrees and turning to something else like God and his grace and his forgiveness. A man who repents is one who turns from sin 180 degrees and turns to God in forgiveness and love and mercy, who receives grace. There was a specific instance in Saul's life where God told him, when you go out to do this military conquest, do these specific things. Saul's so like, yeah, I'll do that. And then he goes out and he doesn't do any of them. He totally disobeys God. And then, and then Samuel is sent to, to deliver God's message. And Saul begins to justify himself. Well, I did it because, it, well, I didn't do what God told me because I thought this was going to be better. Well, God said this, but I thought this was going to be the best way, the better way. And Samuel says, because, because of your disobedience, the kingdom is being taken from you. And when Saul realized the consequences of his sin, he felt sorry. He was like, oh, God, I'm, I'm sorry about that. But did he repent? Absolutely not. Was he grieved? Was he broken over his sin? No. He was the kind of guy that once he gets caught, then feels sorry. But his sin did not grieve his heart. He did not understand that his sin grieved the heart of God. And so the kingdom was taken from him. And then once he realized the consequences of his sin, then he felt a little bit bad. But he was not broken. He did not turn from his sin. David, on the other hand, has an affair with a wife who was married to one of his military guys. Then he had that military guy killed. And, he, and then David went on with his life like no big deal. Nathan is the prophet during this time. God sends Nathan to tell David what he did was wrong. And Nathan comes to David and says what he did broke the heart of God and grieved and was a terrible, terrible thing. And this is how David responds in chapter 51, Psalm chapter 51. This is David's repentance. He says in Psalm 51, verse 1, 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Go down to verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do you see the difference between Saul and David? David was broken by his sin. He repented of it. Before he even knew what the consequences of his sin were going to be, he was just beside himself with remorse and regret and repentance. That's a completely different response than Saul. You know, our spiritual lives are a lot like our physical lives. Physically, we're born as babies, and then we grow over the course of our lives to maturity, to become mature adults. Spiritually, is the same way. Spiritually, when we are reborn, when we are born again as children of God, we are born again as spiritual babies And then over the course of our spiritual lives, there ought to be a slow and steady trajectory of growth toward what? Christ-likeness. Away from sin and toward Christ-likeness. Kind of like a financial investment, right? A financial investment, the goal is to see slow and steady growth over the length of that investment. And you could zero in on that line at any point and go, yeah, there were dips where it went down, but then it responded and it came back up. Same in our spiritual lives. You can look at that trajectory of growth and you can go, yeah, there were dips where I sinned, but then the man of God is a man who repents and pursues holiness and Christ-likeness. And there's this fighting for a holy life through the power of the Holy Spirit, this trajectory of growth. Let me tell you this. This is really important. A man after God's heart is not perfect. But a man after God's heart fights through the power of the Holy Spirit to cast sin aside and run the race with endurance. A man after God's heart is not perfect, but a man after God's heart fights and pursues holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit so that when you look at his life, it's a slow, steady climb, trajectory of spiritual growth. The question then for us, all of us, but particularly for the men, what is your response to your sin? Is it more like Saul where you're sorry if you get caught or if you're sorry because there are sometimes consequences to your sin? Or is your response to your sin like David? Repentance, brokenness, a contrite heart, an acknowledgement that sin has violated your relationship with God and offended a holy God and has temporarily broken fellowship with God such to the fact that you're going, I need to restore that with God. Forgive me, cleanse me, bring me back. And he will. There was a a Puritan pastor in the 1600s named Richard Baxter and he was 
telling his congregation about how to love Jesus and hate your sin. And he was giving these directives for how you can hate your sin. And so he's talking about how Jesus came to atone for our sin. Jesus came to destroy sin. His blood was shed for our sin. His life, was con- his life condemned our sin. And then he says this, love Christ and you will hate that which caused his death. Love him and you will love to be made like him and hate that which is so contrary to him. Did you catch that? Love Christ and you will hate that which caused his death. Love him and you will love to be made like him and hate that which is so contrary to him. Men, do you hate your sin? Do you understand what your sin does to your relationship with God, what it does to your relationship with others? Do you despise your sin? Do you despise it? A man after God's heart repents of his sin and receives the forgiveness and mercy and grace of God. Third and final character trait, a man who worships. A man who worships. David was a worshiper of God. He wrote 73 of the, of the Psalms, which are basically like hymns. And in one Psalm in particular, Psalm 29, Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, David writes this about worshiping God. He says, ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe is just another way of saying give. Give to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. That is a heart of a worshiper. David's primary concern was the magnification of God. The magnification to make much out of God's glory, his grandeur, his beauty, because David knew who God was and David knew what God did for him. A man after God's heart is a man who worships because he knows who God is and what God has done. Saul, on the other hand, after a particular military battle, he erected a monument to himself. Saul's primary concern was the magnification of self, and it came from pride. And hear me, pride is a cancer in the heart of a worshiper. Pride is a cancer in the heart of a worshiper. It is a silent killer because it comes in subtly into the heart of the worshiper, and it shifts the focus from worshiping God to worshiping self. And Saul was prideful and he worshiped himself. So the question is, are you a worshiper of God? Do you worship God? Jordy Nelson is one of my very favorite football players. He went about his business with humility and he never pointed to the back of his jersey. Have you seen pro athletes point to the back of their jerseys? It's a magnification of self, isn't it? Guys like Jordy Nelson stick out like sore thumbs because they are guys with humility and they are guys who who just love the game and love their teammates. Jordy Nelson, he played wide receiver, so whenever he ran in for a touchdown, he gave the ball to the referee, he put his head down, he ran to the sideline and went about his business. You know why? Because he was not preoccupied with self. He cared about his team. He didn't care about his own stats. He didn't care about anything else but his team and the love of the game. A man who worships God is preoccupied with God's glory. 
There's a guy named David Mathis. He's from John Piper's church. He wrote a book called Habits of Grace, which is a, a book on spiritual disciplines. And he, in this book, he talks about how to be a true worshiper of God. And he, he talks about the secret of joy in worship is the art of self-forgetfulness. When you forget about who you are and you are preoccupied with God. And he says this, worship is a means of grace not when we're caught up with what we're doing, but when we experience the secret of worship, the joy of self-forgetfulness, as we become preoccupied together with Jesus and his manifold perfections. So men, everyone, but men in particular, are you a man after God's heart because you're a worshiper of him? Do you worship God? Are you preoccupied with God's beauty, with his grandeur, with his glory, with his majesty because you know who he is and you know what he has done? Listen, if you worship money, you'll become greedy. If you worship sex, you will become lustful. If you worship power, you will become ruthless. If you worship yourself, you will become prideful. If you worship the living God, you will become Christ-like. If you worship the living God, you will become a man after God's heart. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman and he tells the Samaritan woman, the Father is looking, is seeking for worshipers. Are you a worshiper of God the Father? I started off this service, this sermon, by saying my my prayer for you, all of you, but for the men in particular, is that you would listen to the Holy Spirit of God this month and then that you would have the courage to respond to the Holy Spirit of God in obedience. Take a second. What is the Holy Spirit telling you right now? Listen to him. Men, is he telling you that you need to feast on God's word? Read it, study it, apply it. Is he telling you to repent of a particular sin, to turn 180 degrees from the sin to receive forgiveness and grace and mercy in humility? Is he telling you that you are preoccupied with something or someone other than his character and his nature, his beauty, his magnificence? Saul was poised for greatness, chosen by God to be the king of Israel, but through one act of disobedience after another, the throne was taken from him and given to David. David, despite his great sin, was called a man after God's own heart because he feasted on God's word. He repented of his sin, and he was a worshiper of God. Men, we can be transformed. We can be known as men of God if we feast on God's word, we repent of our sin, and we worship God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for Jesus. I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that we would feast on your word, that we would repent of our sin, and that we would come to you and worship you in all of your magnificence. In your name we pray, amen.